Chapter Five of the Invasion by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Five: State of Siege Declared. That our fleet had been taken unawares was apparent. There were all sorts of vague rumors of a sudden attack upon the North Sea Fleet at Rosyth and a fierce cruiser battle in which we had been badly beaten by Germany. It is, however, the land campaign which we have here to record. The authentic account of a further landing in Essex, somewhere near Malden, was now published. The statement had been dictated by Mr. Henry Alexander, J.P., the mayor of Malden, who had succeeded in escaping from the town, to Captain Wilfred Quare of the Intelligence Department of the War Office. This department had in turn given it to the newspapers for publication. It read as follows. On Sunday morning, September 2, I had arranged to play a round of golf with my friend Summers of Belay before church. I met him at the golf hut about 8.30. We played one round and were at the last hole but three in a second round when we both thought we heard the sound of shots fired somewhere in the town. We couldn't make anything at all of it, and as we had so nearly finished the round, we thought we would do so before going to inquire about it. I was making my approach to the final hole when an exclamation from Summers spoiled my stroke. I felt annoyed, but as I looked around, doubtless somewhat irritably, my eyes turned in the direction in which I now saw my friend was pointing, with every expression of astonishment in his countenance. "'Who on earth are those fellows?' he asked. As for me, I was too dumbfounded to reply. Galloping over the links from the direction of the town came three men in uniform, soldiers, evidently. I had often been in Germany and recognized the squat Pickelhobs and general get-up of the rapidly approaching horsemen at a glance. They were upon us almost as we spoke, pulling up their horses with a great spattering up of grass and mud, quite ruining one of our best greens. All three of them pointed big, ugly, repeating pistols at us, and the leader, a conceited-looking ass in staff uniform, required us to surrender in quite a pompous manner, but in very good English. By the King. Proclamation for calling out the Army Reserve. Edward R. Whereas, by the Reserve Forces Act, 1882, it is amongst other things enacted that in case of imminent national danger or of great emergency, it shall be lawful for us, by proclamation, the occasion being declared in council and notified by the proclamation, if Parliament be not then sitting, to order that the Army Reserve shall be called out on permanent service, and by any such proclamation to order a Secretary of State from time to time to give, and when given, to revoke or vary such directions as may seem necessary or proper for calling out the forces or force mentioned in the proclamation, or all or any of the men belonging thereto. And whereas Parliament is not sitting, and whereas we have declared in Council and hereby notify the present state of public affairs and the extent of the demands on our military forces for the protection of the interests of the Empire, constitute a case of great emergency within the meaning of the said act. Now, therefore, we do, in pursuance of the said act, hereby order that our Army Reserve be called out on permanent service, and we do hereby order the Right Honorable Charles Leonard Spencer Cotterill, 
one of our principal secretaries of state, from time to time to give, and when given, to revoke or vary such directions as may seem necessary or proper for calling out our army reserve, or all or any of the men belonging thereto, and such men shall proceed to and attend at such places and at such times as may be respectively appointed by him to serve as part of our army until their services are no longer required. Given at our court at James, this fourth day of September, in the year of our Lord, 1,910, and in the tenth year of our reign. God save the King. Do we look so very dangerous, Herr Lieutenant? inquired I in German. He dropped a little of his frills when he heard me speak in his native language, asked which of us was the mayor, and condescended to explain that I was required in Malden by the officer at present, in command of His Imperial Majesty the Kaiser's forces occupying that place. I looked at my captor in complete bewilderment. Could he be some fellow trying to take a rise out of me by masquerading as a German officer? But no, I recognized at once that he was the genuine article. He demanded my parole, which I made no difficulty about giving, since I did not see any way of escape, and in any case was only too anxious to get back to town to see how things were. "'But you don't want my friend, do you? He lives out the other way,' I queried. "'I don't want him, but he will have to come all the same,' rejoined the German. "'It isn't likely we're going to let him get away to give the alarm in Colchester, is it?' Obviously it was not, and without more ado we started off at a sharp walk, holding on to the stirrup leathers of the horseman. As we entered the town there was on the bridge over the river a small picket of blue-coated German infantry. The whole thing was a perfect nightmare. It was past belief. "'How on earth did you get here?' I couldn't help asking. "'By water,' he answered shortly, pointing down the river as he spoke, where I was still further astonished, if it were possible after such a morning, to see several stream pinnaces and boats flying the black and white German ensign. I was conducted straight to the Moot Hall. There I found a grizzled veteran waiting on the steps, who turned round and entered the building as we came up. We followed him inside, and I was introduced to him. He appeared to be a truculent old ruffian. "'Well, Mayor,' he said, pulling viciously at his white moustache, "'do you know that I've a great mind to take you out into the street, and have you shot?' I was not at all inclined to be browbeaten. "'Indeed, Herr Hauptmann,' I answered. "'And may I inquire in what way I have incurred the displeasure of the Hochwogdeboren officer?' "'Don't trifle with me, sir. Why don't you allow your miserable volunteers to come out and shoot my men?' "'My volunteers? I'm afraid I don't understand what you mean,' I said. "'I'm not a volunteer officer. Even if I were I should have no cognizance of anything that has happened within the last two hours as I have been down on the golf course.' "'This officer will bear me out,' I added, turning to my captor. He admitted that he had found me there. "'But anyway, you are the mayor,' persisted my interrogator. "'Why did you allow the volunteers to come out? If you had been good enough to inform us of your visit, we might have made better arrangements,' I answered. "'But in any case you must understand that a mayor has little or no authority in this country. His job is to head subscription lists, eat a dinner or two, and make speeches on public occasions. 
He seemed to have some difficulty in swallowing this, but as another officer who was there writing at a table, and who it appears had lived at some period in England, corroborated my statement, the choleric colonel seemed to be a little mollified, and contented himself with demanding my parole not to leave Malden until he had reported the matter to the general for decision. I gave it without more ado, and then asked if he would be good enough to tell me what had happened. From what he told me, and what I heard afterwards, it seems that the Germans must have landed a few of their men about half an hour before I left home, down near the Marine Lake. They had not entered the town at once, as their object was to work round outside, and occupy all entrances to prevent anyone getting away with the news of their presence. They had not noticed the little lane leading to the golf course, and so I had gone down without meeting any of them, although they had actually got a picket just beyond the railway arch at the time. They had completed their cordon before there was any general alarm in the town, but at the first reliable rumor it seems that young Shan, of the Essex Volunteers, had contrived to get together twenty or thirty of his men in their uniforms, and foolishly opened fire on a German picket down by St. Mary's Church. They fell back, but were almost instantly reinforced by a whole company that had just landed, and our men rushing forward had been ridden into by some cavalry that came up a side street. They were dispersed, a couple of them were killed and several wounded, among them poor Shan, who was hit in the right lung. They had bagged four Germans, however, and their commanding officer was furious. It was a pity that it happened, as it could not possibly have been of any use. But it seems that Shand had no idea that it was more than a very small detachment that had landed from a gunboat that someone said they had seen down the river. Some of the volunteers were captured afterwards and sent off as prisoners, and the Germans posted up a notice that all volunteers were forthwith to surrender either themselves or their arms and uniforms under pain of death most of them did the latter. They could do nothing after it was found that the Germans had a perfect army somewhere between Malden and the sea, and were pouring troops into the town as fast as they could. That very morning a Saxon rifle battalion arrived from the direction of Munden, and just afterwards a lot of spike-helmeted gentlemen came in by train from Wickford Way. So it went on all day, until the whole town was in a perfect uproar. The infantry were billeted in the town, but the cavalry and guns crossed the river and canal at Haybridge, and went off in the direction of Witham. Malden is built on a hill that slopes gradually towards the east and south, but rises somewhat abruptly on the west and north, humping up a shoulder, as it were, to the northwest. At this corner they started to dig entrenchments just after one o'clock, and soon officers and orderlies were busy all round the town, plotting, measuring, and setting up marks of one kind and another. Other troops appeared to be busy down in Haybridge, but what they were doing I could not tell, as no one was allowed to cross the bridge over the river. The German officer who had surprised me down on the golf course did not turn out to be a bad kind of youth on further acquaintance. He was a Captain von Hildenbrand of the Guard Fusilier Regiment who was employed on the staff, though in what capacity he did not say. Thinking it just as well to make the best of a bad job, I invited him to lunch. He said he had to be off. He, however, introduced me to three friends of his in the 101st Grenadiers, 
who he suggested should be billeted on me. I thought the idea a fairly good one, and von Hildebrand, having apparently arranged this with the billeting officer without any difficulty, I took them home with me to lunch. I found my wife and family in a great state of mind, both on account of the untoward happenings of the morning and my non-return from golf at the expected time. They had imagined all sorts of things which might have befallen me, but luckily seemed not to have heard of my adventure with the choleric colonel. Our three foreigners soon made themselves very much at home, but as they were undeniably gentlemen they contrived to be about as agreeable as could be expected under the circumstances. Indeed their presence was to a great extent a safeguard against annoyance, as the stable and back premises were stuffed full of soldiers, who might have been very troublesome had they not been there to keep them in order. Of what was happening up in London we knew nothing. Being Sunday, all the shops were shut, but I went out and contrived to lay in a considerable stock of provisions one way and another, and it was just as well I did, for I only just anticipated the Germans, who commandeered everything in the town, and put everybody on an allowance of rations. They paid for them with bills on the British government, which were by no means acceptable to the shopkeepers. However, it was Hobson's choice, that or nothing. The Germans soothed them by saying that the British army would be smashed in a couple of weeks, and the defrayment of such bills would be among the conditions of peace. The troops generally seemed to be well behaved, and treated those inhabitants with whom they came in contact in an unexceptionable manner. They did not see very much of them, however, as they were kept hard at work all day with their entrenchments, and were not allowed out of their billets after eight o'clock that evening. No one, in fact, was allowed to be about the streets after that hour. Two or three people were shot by the sentries as they tried to break out in one direction or the other. These affairs produced a feeling of horror and indignation in the town, as Englishmen, having such a long experience of peace in their own country, have always refused to realize what war really means. The German fortifications went on at a rapid rate. Trenches were dug all round the northern and western sides of the town before dark on the first evening, and the following morning I woke up to find three huge gun-pits yawning in my garden, which looked to the northward. During breakfast there was a great rattling and rumbling in the street without, and presently three big field howitzers were dragged in and planted in the pits. There they stood, their ugly snouts pointing skyward in the midst of the wreck of flowers and fruit. Afterwards I went out and found that other guns and howitzers were being put in position all along the north side of Bealey Road and round the corner by the old barracks. The high tower of the disused Church of St. Peter's, now utilized for the safe custody of Dr. Plume's library, had been equipped as a lookout and signal station. Such was the condition of affairs in the town of Malden on Monday morning. The excitement in London and indeed all over the country on Tuesday night, was intense. Scotney's story of the landing at Weybourne was eagerly read everywhere. As the sun sank blood-red into the smoke haze behind Nelson's monument in Trafalgar Square, it was an ominous sign to the panic-stricken crowds that day and night were now assembled there. The bronze lions facing the four points of the compass were now mere mocking emblems of England's departed greatness. The mobilization muddle was known, for, according to the papers, 
hardly any troops has as yet assembled at their places of concentration. The whole of the east of England was helplessly in the invaders' hands. From Newcastle had come terrible reports of the bombardment. Half the city was in flames, the Ellswick works were held by the enemy, and whole streets in Newcastle, Gateshead, Sunderland, and Tynemouth were still burning fiercely. The Tynemouth fort had proved of little or no use against the enemy's guns. The Germans had, it appeared, used petrol bombs with appalling results, spreading fire, disaster, and death everywhere. The inhabitants, compelled to fly with only the clothes they wore, had scattered all over Northumberland and Durham, while the enemy had seized a quantity of valuable shipping that had been in the Tyne, hoisted the German flag, and converted the vessels to their own uses. Many had already been sent across to Wilhelmshaven, Emden, Bremerhaven, and other places to act as transports, while the Ellswick works, which surely ought to have been properly protected, supplied the Germans with quantities of valuable material. Panic and confusion were everywhere. All over the country the railway system was utterly disorganized, business everywhere was at a complete deadlock, for in every town and city all over the kingdom the banks were closed. Lombard Street, Lothbury, and other banking centers in the city had all day on Monday been the scene of absolute panic. There, as well as at every branch bank all over the metropolis, had occurred a wild rush to withdraw deposits by people who foresaw disaster. Many, indeed, intended to fly with their families away from the country. The price of the necessities of life had risen further, and in the East End and poorer districts of Southwark the whole population were already in a state of semi-starvation. But worst of all, the awful truth with which London was now face to face was that the metropolis was absolutely defenseless. Every hour the papers were appearing with fresh details of the invasion, for reports were so rapidly coming in from every hand that the press had difficulty in dealing with them. Hull and Ghoul were known to be in the hands of the invaders, and Grimsby, where the mayor had been unable to pay the indemnity demanded, had been sacked. But details were not yet forthcoming. Londoners, however, learnt late that night more authentic news from the invaded zone, of which Beckles was the centre, and it was to the effect that those who had landed at Lowstoff were the Ninth German Army Corps with General von Kronhelm, the generalissimo of the German army. This army corps, consisting of about 40,000 men, was divided into the 17th Division, commanded by Lieutenant-General Hocker, and the 18th by Lieutenant-General von Rock. The cavalry was under the command of Major-General von Heiden, and the motor infantry under Colonel Reichardt. Notice. To all German subjects resident in England. Wilhelm. To all our loyal subjects, greeting. We hereby command and enjoin that all persons born within the German Empire, or being German subjects, whether liable to military service or not, shall join our arms at any headquarters of either our Army Corps in England within twenty-four hours of the date of this proclamation. Any German subject failing to obey this our command will be treated as an enemy. By the Emperor's command, given at Beckles, September 3, 1910, von Kronhelm, commanding the Imperial German Army in England. 
According to official information which had reached the war office and been given to the press, the 17th Division was made up of the Bremen and Hamburg Infantry Regiments, the Grand Duke of Mecklenburg's Grenadiers, the Grand Duke's Fusiliers, the Lübeck Regiment No. 162, the Schleswig-Holstein Regiment No. 163, while the cavalry brigade consisted of the 17th and 18th Grand Duke of Mecklenburg's Dragoons. The 18th Division consisted of the Schleswig Regiment No. 84 and the Schleswig Fusiliers No. 86, the Thuringen Regiment and the Duke of Holstein's Regiment, the two latter regiments being billeted in Lowestoft, while the cavalry brigade forming the screen across from Leiston by Wilby to Castle Hill were Queen Wilhelmina's Hanover Hussars and the Emperor of Austria's Schleswig-Holstein Hussars No. 16. These, with the smart motor infantry, held every communication in the direction of London. As far as could be gathered, the German commander had established his headquarters in Beckles and had not moved. It now became apparent that the telegraph cables between the East Coast and Holland and Germany, already described in the first chapter, had never been cut at all. They had simply been held by the enemy's advance agents until the landing had been effected. And now von Kronhelm had actually established direct communication between Beckles and Emden, and on to Berlin. Reports from the North Sea spoke of the enemy's transports returning to the German coast, escorted by cruisers, therefore the plan was undoubtedly not to move until a very much larger force had been landed. Could England regain her command of the sea in time to prevent the completion of the blow? That night the London streets presented a scene of panic indescribable. The theatres opened, but closed their doors again, as nobody would see plays while in that excited state. Every shop was closed, and every railway station was filled to overflowing with the exodus of terrified people fleeing to the country westward or reserves on their way to join the colors. The incredulous manner in which the country first received the news had now been succeeded by wild terror and despair. On that bright Sunday afternoon they laughed at the report as a mere journalistic sensation, but ere the sun set the hard terrible truth was forced upon them, and now on Tuesday night, the whole country, from Brighton to Carlisle, from Yarmouth to Aberystwyth, was utterly disorganized and in a state of terrified anxiety. The eastern counties were already beneath the iron heel of the invader, whose objective was the world's great capital, London. Would they reach it? That was the serious question upon everyone's tongue, that fevered, breathless night. End of chapter 5 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com.